spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Your cure for the Comic Con hangover is episode 224 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Yes, fresh back from San Diego and all the news that's come out of San Diego Comic Con 2018. Not going to mess around because there's so much to talk about this week. We'll go through all of the trailers. We'll go through some of the news that came out, comic book news, entertainment news. And at the end of the show, we'll give you some information about DC Lego superheroes Aquaman Rage of Atlantis that is actually going to be coming out here in a few days. So we'll talk to the cast and the producers and the writers. You'll hear all the interviews fresh from the press room at San Diego Comic-Con 2018. But normally this is how I'd say it's time for what we're reading. But no, we're going to go right into it and focus right now on the comic book news that came out from the last couple of days or maybe got lost in the shuffle because, you know, Comic-Con is so huge. And sometimes some of these comic book announcements kind of get lost. So I wanted to highlight a few that stood out to me. We'll start with IDW. And I'm excited about this. I don't know if anybody else is. I'm sure that there's plenty of fans that are. But GoBots are coming back for their 35th anniversary, coming back to comics. It's going to be a five-issue series on Tom Scioli is going to be doing all the work, writing, art, colors, you name it. Now, in the five-issue series, the existence of GoBots on Earth has kind of changed the way that humans go about their way of life. I mean, they're, they're help, helping us out, they're chauffeuring us, they're, do all, they're doing all kinds of different things, and it's really almost integrated into society. Apparently, that's the way that this story is going to go. But the question ultimately becomes, according to the press release, is that are they here to replace us? What are their motives, really? I, I mean, I always loved GoBots. I had all the GoBots toys when I was a kid. It wasn't a... You're either Transformers or GoBots for me. And, you know, maybe GoBots weren't as cool as Transformers to most people. I loved GoBots. I still do. I think that this is going to be really, really cool. And I'm glad that IDW feels the same way that I do in Hasbro because I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the GoBots come back. And maybe we will finally get a GoBots and Transformers crossover of some kind in the comics. I think that would be cool to do. Why not address that at some point? So hopefully... This one is successful. Star Wars Adventure is going to be continuing with IDW as well, this time doing a kind of a mini-series, I guess you could call it, Tales from Vader's Castle. It's going to be a five-part comic book event that's going to be coming out on in October. Kevan Scott and Derek Charm are going to be teaming up. It's going to include characters from multiple eras. You're going to see characters like Count Dooku that you might have seen in the, in the prequels, you're going to be see, seeing characters from the quote-unquote original trilogy as well. And and it just looks like it's going to be a fun book. It looks like it's going to be, in all, of course, all ages, which is what Star Wars Adventures is doing. And then, of course, you have IDW that announced that partnership with Marvel doing all ages comics with Spider-Man. There's going to be an Avengers title and Black Panther as well. So it's nice to see Marvel playing nice with others at this point. Kind of about time. And I think that IDW's gotten a reputation for their all-ages comics and how well they've done with Star Wars Adventures and some of the Disney titles that they've had in the past as well, that I think that this could be a really cool way. I mean, you want to be able to introduce younger people into fandom any way you can, and I think that this would be a cool book 
to do that for Star Wars. And I think Star Wars Adventures has done a great job with that. Not to be outdone, though, Black Crown has announced a new title of their own Eisner Award-winning David and Maria Lafham, excuse me, and going to be bringing a book called Lodger, which is going to be, it's billed as a brutal psychological thriller, and it kind of goes around a cat and mouse game through the roadside of America between a vengeful woman and a serial killer that ruined her life. That is straight from the press release itself that was sent out by IDW. And it looks like it's going to be a dark and and gritty crime noir. You had me at crime noir. And I think that this is one thing that I was expecting to see from Black Crown eventually. I'm not saying that, you know, they've been holding out on us or anything because Black Crown, I talked to Shelly Bond actually really briefly at San Diego Comic-Con 2018 and just talking about the great job that Black Crown has done and bringing a wide variety of titles. But this, I think, is one that went begging is that, they didn't really have any noir stuff as far as crime genre was concerned, and I felt like that was something they could do very well. So I'm glad that Lodger, and you get an Eisner Award-winning team to boot, so you bring Lodger in to do that. I think it's going to be really, really neat, and I think it's a good step forward for the future of Black Crown. And I think noir is something that they could really capture. They've done such a good job with the books that they have out already with, with Euthanauts, and then we've got Punk's Not Dead, I mean, they've had so many successful titles to transition into this. I think it's going to be really, really neat. Dark Horse had a couple of pretty good announcements as well. Aliens 3 is going to be happening in comics. Now, let me explain that a little bit. Now, it's going to be coming to Dark Horse Comics, and it's going to be William Gibson's original unproduced Aliens 3 script that's going to be brought to life. You know, the, the vision never really saw the light of day in the final product. A lot of the ideas that he had and the stuff that was in that script was not used. Now, writer and artist Johnny Christmas is actually going to help bring this light to light, and Tamara Bonvillain is actually going to be involved in this as well. Now, we're going to be seeing this November the 7th. It's going to be a five-part series, and I, and I like this because you always wonder what happens to these scripts, and I mean, if you saw the Death of Superman Lives documentary, we saw the process of how you know that script changed several times, and again, a movie that never saw the light of day. So it's cool that in the comics we get a chance to bring this script to life finally. And I think it's something that alien, alien fans were kind of hoping would happen someday. Or, you know, it's a vision that you, it's a what-if sort of situation, right? Where you say, okay, well, what if this script had come out instead of the Alien 3 script that came out years ago? How would things have been different? for the franchise, and what would the story have actually been? And now there's been details about the script that have been leaked out you know, throughout the years, and I'm certainly not going to, to, to do that to you. If you want to Google it, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that because I want you to be able to enjoy this comic book series, and I'm sure there are going to be some subtle changes here and there. From the, It's not going to be the, probably the exact script, but if you're an Alien fan, you got to be psyched about this, right? G. Willow Wilson had a good Comic-Con, right? Of course, we find out about her going to be... G. Willow Wilson going to be writing Wonder Woman at some point. Now we know that another new project coming to Dark Horse Comics called Invisible Kingdom, which is going to be in March of 2019, and it's actually going to be from the Burger Books imprint. Now, again, from the press release, it says the two women, one a younger religious acolyte and the other a hard-bitten fighter pilot, who separately uncover an unholy conspiracy between the leader of the Renunciation, the system's dominant religion, and Lux, the all-consuming megacorporation that controls society. So, 
you uncover something like that, you're going to be on the run. And then I'm sure that, you know, it just doesn't seem, it's like oil and water here. It doesn't seem like these two would necessarily get along very well, but it's almost like, okay, I've written this in reviews before recently and a book that I read recently and says, okay, what do you, what do you believe in? How strongly do you believe it? And if you have to go back on that belief at some point or question it, where do you go from here? It just seems like there's so many different angles and layers that this book could go. And G. Willow Wilson, extremely talented. And not to say that G. Willow Wilson isn't already well-known, but I mean, it just seems like this is going to be her year, right? Where she's just going to be thrust right into the forefront as a major, major writer. It's almost like, remember when Tom King started out with Omega Men with DC? Then he moved to Grayson. And the, or, or vice versa. I, I might be mixing those two up. Tom, I apologize if that's the case. And then all of a sudden he's on Batman and now this all, and now the sky's the limit for Tom King. I feel like G. Willow Wilson's on a similar path here. And it's only a matter of time before G. Willow Wilson is the, one of the it writers that you want for almost any book at this point, if that's not already happening already. Quickly, I also wanted to run down Comixology because they had a big San Diego Comic-Con as well announcing a ton of original series. I wanted to pick out three or so that really stood out to me. One of them was Goliath Girls, which is from our buddy Sam Humphreys. You heard from him last week with art by Alti Firm and Shaw. And I'm sorry, I butcher names all the time on the show in case you're not familiar with that. Now, quickly, it, this is Monsters Will Rise, Cities Will Fall, but Best Friends Are Forever. It's going to be de- dealing with characters Zelda, Eunice, and Juliet, who are three best friends, orphans, of a certain generation, of the kaiju generation. There we go. I can say that word. And the, the adoptive mothers to their own baby Goliath. And it just seems like, you know, there's going to be a, a war here. It's, it seems like a really, really fun book. And it seems like that's kind of where Sam Humphreys is always gone, right? I mean, Green Lanterns was fun when he wrote that. Nightwing did a good job with that as well. If you want a fun book with a cool story, you can never really go wrong with Sam Humphreys. So I'm looking forward to that one. Grave Danger is another one that stuck out to me because, of course, Tim Seeley's involved and Mike Norton with art as well. And now, again, from the release, she is Grave Danger, agent of Headstone, a joint clandestine espionage organization that handles all unspeakable crime. Now, I mean, we're talking about there's going to be paranormal entities involved in this. I mean, vampires, witches, demons, things like that. And the, the morning angel base is where they work out of. Again, it just seems like it's really fun, doesn't it? This is going to be a five-issue miniseries, which is going to be available for $2.99 per issue on Kindle and Comixology. A lot of these books, by the way, if you're a Prime member, already free for you to read in the first place. So that's another perk of the Comixology Unlimited series as well. Another one that stood out to me was The Stone King, which is going to be written by Kel McDonald and art by Tyler Crook, of course, from Harrow County. Where do you go from there? Well, you go to a young adult fantasy adventure about finding who you are through taking responsibility for your mistakes. A book that we kind of need right now, I think. And I, I, th- I think that this will send the right message. Now, The Stone King explores the life of a teen girl thief working to determine her future path, but instead provoking a giant. Again... I'm pointing out these books because it seems like there's a lot of fun to be had in these Comixology original series, and they are going all in on this. And I, I got to applaud Comixology really taking their time to making sure they get it right before you just kind of throw these things out there. 
So I think that they did very, very well in choosing the titles that they did. Got some big name creators, and and I'm all in for these. I'm sure I'll read some of the others as well. Be listening to future show for more and reviews of these Comixology originals, and of course, at downandnerdypodcast.com. Quickly, a couple of announcements from Dynamite as well. We're going to get a Battlestar Galactica 40th anniversary series from John Jackson Miller, who, of course, from Star Wars fame, and Daniel HDR going to be in the art as well. And it's going to be Commander Adama and the remnants of humanity discover a second fugitive fleet fleeing from a different mortal enemy. And, and it, again, that just seems like if you're a Battlestar Galactica fan, that would be something really, really fun. You know, the Cylons are going to be involved as well. And it's going to be coming in October. The first issue is going to be a zero, a zero issue for 35 cents. Again, something that Dynamite's done very well. Let's hook you with an issue that has the old-timey pricing. That's what I like to call it. It's old-timey pricing. So let's hook you with that, and then you'll, you're going to want to read the rest of the series. We'll set the stage for you. It's almost like they're doing a free comic book day for certain issues, but they're not free. They're just really, really discounted to the point where they might as well be free. And I think that that's a really smart move by Dynamite. Why not do that? I actually think other publishers should follow suit for certain series on that as well. Rainbow Rainbow Bright is going to be coming back to comics as well. Again, something that that Dynamite's done very well, taking certain nostalgia properties and pushing them back into the forefront. Bill Tucci's going to be writing a Miss Fury ongoing series as well. Can't wait for that. And one of the things that I thought was is going to be really fun is Dynamite's going to be doing five Halloween one-shots coming up in October. There's going to be Vampirella, Army of Darkness, Betty Page, Elvira, and Red Sonia who are going to have their own out-of-continuity one-shot series. And again, perfect time. And that's a niche that Dynamite's really started to carve out for themselves is kind of that nostalgia horror niche that they're doing very, very well with. So I'm very curious to see just how well these are and if that opens the door to something else at some point. That's going to do it for the comic book news from San Diego Comic-Con 2018. Of course, there was some DC news last week. You can listen to last week's show to find out a couple of the DC Comics announcements that you might have missed. But up next, it's this week in Geektainment and plenty of trailers to get through. We'll break them down next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, what's up? This is writer Sam Humphries, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It grabs all the headlines at San Diego Comic-Con, and this year, no exception, all the trailers that were released for San Diego Comic-Con 2018. Let's just start breaking them down, starting with the Aquaman trailer, the first look. Not going to be talking about the footage that was shown, but not released from San Diego Comic-Con, just because, you know, I don't feel like it's my place. If they don't want to talk about it, I'm not going to talk about it either. But And again, I'm not going to give you word for word, shot for shot of all of these trailers. I'm just going to give you my initial impressions. What we're certainly getting with this Aquaman trailer is the Aquaman and Arthur Curry that we saw in Justice League that was very fun, that was kind of like, you know, rock on kind of Arthur Curry and Aquaman. And, And I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. And it looks like he has a heap of problems to deal with. If Black Manta wasn't enough, you have Orm, Ocean Master, that is there as well. And can I just say, let me just get this out of the way right now. Atlantis looks absolutely stunning. Legit stunning. And I can tell you right now, also the costumes which were on display at San Diego Comic-Con, you can go to facebook.com slash nerdy 
to see some of the pictures. Legit. I mean, excellent. Even the Black Mana suit was on display at one spot. It looks fantastic in person. Looked great on the trailer. Looks even better in person. And I think that this is one of those movies that has looked good in the trailer, but is going to be great once it comes out. I've just got a gut feeling about this. I've always been an Aquaman fan. Never really went in for the butt of jokes that was that was associated with Aquaman. It looks like this movie's going to have fun, but also have some meaning because Jason Momoa has said, you know, this is him trying to become worthy of becoming king or accepting that role, as it were, and all of the problems that go along with it. And it looks like there is going to be a deeply touching telling of his origin as well and his family and his mom and his dad. And I think that as long as they get that right and you set that tone early, then I think you've really got something. And then you've got Amber Heard, whose Mara looks very, very strong in this movie. So I am looking forward to Aquaman already. I was already looking forward to the movie already. I'm really looking forward to it now after seeing this trailer. And from what I understand, the footage that was shown knocked the people's socks off even more than the trailer did. Again, not even going to go in to that here, but you've got so much that we were given in this trailer. We got to, got to get a look of pretty much everything, not enough to sort of give anything away, but just enough to get you excited, which I absolutely am for Aquaman. Now, as we move on to something that we got more of a look at than I actually thought we did, and that was Shazam and Zachary Levi, which to me almost feels like a superhero version of Big with Tom Hanks, doesn't it? Because, you, you know, you've got, you've got Billy and, and his kind of foster family and friends, and sort of it's very much an origin movie with Billy discovering his powers with the help of, of other people and trying to figure out exactly, you know, how he's going to become his own hero, even though it was kind of a creepy way that he finds out that he was chosen. Wasn't it on, on the subway there? That was, that was kind of freaky for a moment in the trailer. But you also kind of get to see how it's kind of a sad version of his origin, right? Going in foster care and things like that. The one thing that is still kind of a mystery, other than the fun of the trailer itself, which again, to me, looks very, very much like a superhero version of Big, is Savan, or Savannah, I should say, who's going to be the villain. If you, I mean, I am not steeped in Shazam lore, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you like I am. So I think I'm going to be learning, rattling with you. Obviously, you know, we're going to do our research, right? We're going to know more about the character that, than, you know, than we did before once we're going in. But I think that's the point of a movie like Shazam, right? There's a low-risk, high-reward here, and that this is not a character that is known very well in the mainstream. And I know there's somebody out there that's as big of a Shazam fan as most people are about Batman, and you're screaming at me right now, talking about how great and amazing and mainstream that Shazam really is. But, you know, if you're being honest, like, I love Dr. Fate, but I am willing to admit fully that Dr. Fate is not a huge part of what DC has done over the years, character that's had the, had its moments for sure, but never was really that mainstream Justice League character. And I know Shazam was part of the Justice League in the comics plenty. But what I'm saying is, is we're not talking about core members here. So you're not really giving a whole lot of risk with a Shazam movie. And, it, and you're not throwing Black Adam out there right away for a character that's clearly not ready for that. And that is still kind of a kid 
that is getting used to being an adult and having adult powers and responsibilities as a hero. So don't throw Black Adam out there right away. I thought that that was a really smart move that they did not do that. And if the movie succeeds, eventually you will do that down the line, maybe in a sequel or, or past that. And I know we'll see Black Adam before then, but this is not something that you have to rush. And that's, again, this is going to be one of those movies that's going to be straight up fun, maybe even ridiculously fun at times. And and this is smart. The DC is putting this out now and showing that they can set different tones. And it looks like, again, the news that seems to be coming out of Comic-Con is that this is not all connected and they are going to start focusing on here's this character, here's this character, here's this character. And then they always have the option of connecting them at some point, right? It's not saying that you're never going to do it, but it's saying that, yeah, we're going to focus on this and maybe we'll do this at some point down the line. So I'm psyched for Shazam. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Glass is another one from Universal Pictures that really, really caught my eye because we get to see David Dunn, of course, from Unbreakable, James McAvoy's split personality character from Split, and Elijah Price, Samuel L. Jackson himself, of course, we know know he's going to be called Mr. Glass. They're kind of an institution, a group for people who think they have superpowers, or at least the, the psychologist is saying that they think they do. We know better. Now, we see that Price is anxious to show the world that that powered people do exist. And there's kind of a clash there. We also get to see Dunn sort of kind of clash with, I think it's the beast, but there's so many personalities in there that we don't really, really know for sure. But the intensity of this trailer and bringing these worlds together. And at the time you never even really think to bring these worlds together. Right. But once you do, it makes perfect sense when you're seeing it. And I, and I love that we still have that, that sense in, of the, of David Dunn's character and Unbreakable, where, yeah, there's still a reluctance there, and there's still a uneasiness there. Even though he's clearly more comfortable with his powers, it's not like he's full-on hero or even anti-hero. Even to this point, right, there's still that uneasiness there. That's one of the things I actually liked about Unbreakable back then, and, and I can't wait till January 2019, where we'll finally get to see this whole thing come together, because... Man, this was a great idea. And Unbreakable was always one of those sleeper hits, right? It's always one of those movies where you go, oh, yeah, I really liked that. And now it's coming back. And we'll get to see years later what they do with these characters. Switching to the TV side, I'm going to try not to be here for like an hour talking about all these trailers, but there's a ton of them. So let's run through the CW stuff for you really quickly. Arrow is going to be really, really just kind of intense in the beginning as far as Oliver being in prison. We're going to be picking up five months after Oliver has gone to prison. You see him talking to Diggle and let's just face it, prison life sucks for him right now. And it's just not good. And we get to see a lot of familiar faces from past seasons in that prison. And I'm not going to go ahead and do a laundry list of them for you right here. But the thing is, is Oliver hasn't been fighting back. And we see in the trailer that at one point he decides enough is enough and does start to fight back. And then we have to deal with the fact that Diaz is still out there. The team looks like they're struggling in the trailer. And then we see a mystery archer present themselves. Now, we know that the Longbow Hunters are going to be coming. And I swear to you, I asked Beth Schwartz, who's the new showrunner of Arrow, about that in the Arrow press room, if they were going to be a part of the season. Asked it before the panel, and sure enough... 
she's like, well, you never know. And then, bam, there it is. Longbow Hunters going to be coming in some capacity to Arrow Season 7. Now, I'm still thinking, though, could that be Connor Hawk? Or are we just seeing the beginnings of the Longbow Hunters kind of taking control of Star City with Oliver in prison? I, I think that there's a lot of different ways that Arrow can go here. And it didn't really reveal a whole lot of anything in this trailer other than Oliver is struggling and the team is struggling without him being there as well and trying to, to come together. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions like what Roy Harper's role is going to be in this upcoming season, how Felicity and William are dealing with Oliver being in prison and his identity being known. I think that there's a lot of these questions that need to be answered and Arrow can sit back and just peel that onion because there's no rush to answer any of these questions. And it sets them up for a nice season in which they can tell multiple stories and not have to focus on one single thing. And I don't even think the Diaz thing will stick around for an entire season. I think that they'll actually end up wrapping that up maybe mid-season and see where it goes from there. Speaking of seeing where things are going, we need to find out what's going on with Nora on The Flash. We see in the trailer, yep, she's screwed up big time. We already kind of knew that. But what we didn't know was she's here from the future. She can't get back to her time. So we know that much for sure. She also seems very attached to Barry. And that was another thing we talked about in the Flash press room. All of this stuff, by the way, going to be coming on future episodes of the Down and Nerdy podcast as we prepare you for the season premieres of these shows. So those will air right around the time of the premiere, premiere which we know Flash is going to be back on October the 9th. Now, there are complications of dealing with her being there. And the fact that, you know, even Barry says, you know, she could Marty McFly herself right out of existence. Love that reference, by the way. She also has a big secret that we don't really jump into. It's teased at and it's big. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's major. And it looks like it has to do with Barry and, and Iris and their family. Not exactly sure what it is yet. And, and again, why reveal that in the initial trailer? We do get revealed is the new villain that's going to be coming to this season of The Flash, and that is Cicada, who's who's going to be played by Chris Klein. We know that. Now, this is going to be more of a physical challenge for Barry than a mental challenge. We're not dealing with a meta here. So that will be the interesting part. Now, I, I kind of feel like the thinker ended up being a meta at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm not sure that we didn't get a meta last season like we thought we were going to. Looks like this will be the case for this upcoming season and how Cicada stacks up to Team Flash and how Barry deals with a little bit more of a physical challenge. I think it's going to be really neat. And I think that the show will lighten things up a bit. I think Nora will help with that. I think that Joe dealing with the fact that there's a baby in the house now and how the family is going to, how the family dynamic is going to be with that. I, I think that there's going to be a lot of fun to be had on the Flash this season. And I think the serious stuff. Definitely going to be taking a backseat, although it looks like Barry's worries aren't going anywhere anytime soon. October the 14th is when we're going to be seeing Supergirl. It is the CW show, one of the superhero shows from DC that got moved to Sunday. Again, I thought that was a really, really good choice. And another good choice, Agent Liberty is going to be part of this season and playing up the whole, you know, we don't need alien heroes angle. And, you know, they took our jobs and they're doing all this stuff. Look what they're doing in the city sort of thing. So that is where they're going to be going with that. 
We also know that Kara is going to be fighting for what she thinks is her home now on Earth. She's kind of made that decision at this point. Now, something is going on, but it's not clear exactly what. The city's falling down all over the place, and people are needing to be saved left and right. And now we do get to see Kara in a new suit with the helmet at some point. Now, we also know that Manchester Black, if you go back to downandnerdypodcast.com, I kind of predicted Manchester Black would be a part of this season based on some rumors and news and how that could come about. So maybe this destruction is in part from Manchester Black and cars dealing with the fallout from what's going on there. So there's a lot of action in this trailer. I mean, a lot of action from Martian Manhunter to Guardian to Car herself, and there's so much going on there, but we don't really have a lot of answers as to what exactly is going on. And again, Manchester Black could be the catalyst for that. Not exactly sure, but Agent Liberty looks legit. And I think that this is going to be a very intense season of Supergirl. We don't really get a whole lot of hints of the Red Sun storyline either, which I thought was interesting in this first trailer. So I'm not sure exactly how that's going to factor in to the beginning of this season, but really looking forward to it. I thought Supergirl had a pretty strong season overall last year. So this one, I don't see how that's going to be any different. Black Lightning kind of showed a sizzle reel for this past season. We know that there's going to be Tobias Whale is going to be the carryover villain there. And October the 9th is when that show will be coming back as well. So I'm not sure we really got a whole lot of what's going to be going on for season two of Black Lightning. But it really seems like it's a continuation of what we saw at the end of season one, right? We've got Thunder and Lightning that are now in place. We've got... Of course, Black Lightning leading his two daughters. The family dynamic seems better than it ever has before. But, you know, Tobias Whale is that, you know, elephant in the room, to use another animal analogy, that they have to deal with at some point. And again, the aftermath of what they found out at the end of that first season. So I'm sure that once we get a little bit closer to the premiere, we'll find out more about what's going on with Black Lightning season two. Legends of Tomorrow, once again, definitely discovered who they are in taking the lighter approach, being able to make fun of themselves, even breaking the fourth wall at one point in their trailer. Of course, they'll be back on October the 22nd. And John Constantine, yes, will be definitely a part of the team, but he doesn't exactly feel like a welcome member. And it seems like from what we've we've looked at in this trailer was that he's going to be stepping on Sarah's toes a little bit because you know John takes orders so well, right? And he's just going to let Sarah be the captain, I'm sure. No, 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 no. But we do know that there's some nasty entities that are going to be involved, and you know that something was unleashed when they opened up the door to let Malice out. We get to see a unicorn, which is so Legends of Tomorrow that they would pick. And a unicorn at Woodstock, too. What better place to see a unicorn? But, you know, maybe there was other reasons they were seeing unicorns at Woodstock that I won't get into here, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Kids, Google it if you don't know what's going on. We don't really know much about much else about what they will be tracking down, or even a quote-unquote big bad. You see Nora Dark, and she's up to some stuff in the trailer as well. I'm not sure that she'll be the big bad of the season, though. Or do they even really need one? And they're just going to focus on trying to get these magical creatures back in the bottle. Now, we saw that Maisie Richardson Sellers says she's going to be a new character on the show called Charlie, completely new character, and the Legends will have to deal 
with somebody that looks like Amaya but isn't. So we'll find out. You go to at Down Energy 757 on Twitter, watch the video where I asked her about that in the press room. You can see her answer. And she seems really, really excited about it. So yeah, we got a mix of new and old footage, and we can see Sarah's finally happy again, finally happy. And she even says, you know, we're we're finally heroes at this point. But they're definitely sticking with the humor, and I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. One of the big hype shows coming out of San Diego Comic-Con 2018 was definitely Young Justice Outsiders. We saw a lot of footage from the past. And again, reminding people of the relationship between Wally and Artemis. Now, the new footage shows the team reuniting to take down MetaHuman Trafficking Ring that's gonna, that is going on in Markovia. And we see the Prince of Markovia, who's going to become Geoforce, by the way, it tests positive for the metahuman gene and his sister's been taken and maybe that was why maybe she's dealing with the same it just looked intense and then all of a sudden you see character after character lobos there katana's there dr fate a ton of other familiar faces and it's like they are not pulling any punches for young justice outsiders or young justice season three whatever you want to call it it seems like they're, everybody's all in on this, and there's no shortage of characters that they're going to be able to use. I was so hyped after that five minutes that it, it made me want to go back and watch Young Justice, and that's exactly what I'm going to do before Young Justice Outsiders comes out, assuming that this is going to happen in the fall or early 2019. We know that the DC Universe streaming service will be available in the fall. Not sure if Young Justice Outsiders is going to be available right when that launches, though. Switching gears now to Fox and Marvel as we talk about The Gifted. And it seemed like The Gifted Season 2 trailer very much all about Reva Page taking control of the inner circle. You've got Polaris, who's kind of sporting the, the mom look in that, in that trailer, which was very, very interesting and very, very pregnant, by the way. And now what, what Page is kind of setting up here is really a kill-or-be-killed scenario with the mutant underground. It's like, you know, you're either with us or, with us or against us. And even the underground, folks are telling the underground, like, look, I know these are your friends, but you're going to have to take them out at some point if that's what's necessary. Because if you don't, they are going to screw things up big time and take the fight to the humans and sort of wipe them out. So a choice needs to be made here at some point. And it, and it seems like things get very, very intense. And mutants are being treated Worse than ever now. We could see another flash in the trailer. Maybe Reed does have his powers after all. And we do get to see the teams cross paths at, at certain points. Now, there's very much the idea of the X-Men way versus the let's kill all humans way. And Reva's group is saying, well, you know, the way of the X-Men wasn't necessarily the right way. So maybe being shoulder to shoulder with humans is not the best idea in the world. Now, the the subtitle of this first part, at least the first part of the second season, is Dawn of the Mutant Age. And I like how Fox does that. Do that with Gotham as well. Where you give me a tagline of, okay, here's what the show's going to be about, at least in this first part, or maybe throughout the season. I dig that. I'm so, so glad they did that because it really sets the stage for what we're going to be seeing for season two of The Gifted in September. Again, another press room that we covered You'll be hearing more about The Gifted sometime in September. We'll play those interviews for you. And also look for the videos up on our website as well. You want to talk about a show I was really hyped about after being in the press room and seeing the new trailer was Deadly Class. Of course, the adaptation is going to be on sci-fi of the Image Comics series. 
from Rick Remender and company. Now, man, it really paints a picture, though, of how Marcus ended up at this point and highlights how he goes on at the King's Dominion and how things are going quite well for him there. At least it seems that way. It just seems like it's just... All over the place. It's just a wild... I mean, a school for assassins is going to be a wild and crazy place anyway. But it's really highlighted in this trailer, isn't it? It's, it's really setting up a no-rules scenario, even though we know that's not the case at all. There's going to be plenty of rules in the Deadly Class. Now, the trailer made the shook look so fun and fantastic, didn't it? We get to see Maria doing her thing and getting more attached to Marcus. We don't really see a whole lot of Saya, we do get to see her as Marcus is getting ready to take that leap, kind of startle him, and clearly she's been watching him along with Willie as well, who we don't really get to see in this trailer. But what it does is it highlights how fun this show is going to be, how intense the action is going to be, and how just crazy all of these characters really, really are. It doesn't reveal a whole lot beyond that, unless you're already a fan of the graphic novel. But what this sets it, it's kind of the same tone that was set when they released the trailer for Happy last year and showed you, okay, this is what we're going to do. We don't care. We're going to give you an honest adaptation of the comic, and you're going to love it or you're not. I feel like that's we're setting up for the same thing with Deadly Class, and I think you're going to love it. If you don't know the story already and you're just basing it on the show itself, this is one you're not going to want to miss. Deadly Class, I think, is going to be another one of those sleeper hits for sci-fi as sci-fi continues to push themselves up and up and up and being one of the better cable networks with top to bottom amazing series. And by the way, good for them for already renewing Winona Earp for a fourth season as well, not wasting any time there. Star Trek Discovery shows us a little bit of a tease of their second season, and Christopher Pike is taking control of the Discovery. We see Anson Mount playing, of course, Christopher Pike, and gets to say a lot more than he did in Inhumans, so that's already a a feather in his cap right there. Now, what they're doing is they're investigating energy bursts to see if there's signs of aggression there, and there's, I think, five of them were in the the trailer. We find out later on in the trailer that Spock is linked to these things, and, of course, Michael Burnham has a connection to Spock as well. It looks like they're going to try to have a little bit more fun in the show, though. Even though there's definitely some serious business to be had, it looks like the show... Is going to have some brevity. They definitely cracked a few jokes here and there. There were some lighthearted moments. And Christopher Pike's definitely, going to, you would think, definitely bring that anyway. And he seems easygoing, but yet in control at the same time, if that makes sense when you saw it in the trailer. So I, I, I like this lighter feel and tone from Star Trek Discovery. I thought the first season was a little bit all over the place. And it certainly had its up and down moments. And I think going into to the mirror world was a nice touch, though. I think that that was cool. It just seems like this one is a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit lighter. And I think that maybe it'll feel a little bit more like Star Trek. And I know that, that was one of the complaints from Star Trek fans. Is Yeah, it was a Star Trek show, but it didn't feel like Star Trek. Maybe it will now that they're going to sort of lighten things up a bit. Let's move to Netflix now and talk about Disenchantment, which is, of course, the new animated series from Matt Groening creator of The Simpsons, Futurama as well. Now we see that a princess escapes her wedding to go on and see the world, and she takes a couple with her. I mean, you've got a little little devil there. You also have an elf character as well. I will say there were some definitely, definitely some funny moments in the trailer, and I'm definitely psyched to check this out when it comes out on August the 17th. The, my favorite part about this entire trailer, though, is I know this is kind of a, a story... 
that we've seen done many, many times. But this does not feel like The Simpsons and does not feel like Futurama. And that was one of my fears going in is that, okay, when you've got a person that's created a show, not that Futurama and The Simpsons were, were by any means connected, but this is you know the first time in a while that Matt Groening kind of brought something new to the table as far as a new series. So you, you kind of wonder how this is going to feel, and it did not feel like either of those shows at all. This genuinely feels like it's going to be something brand new. And, you know, you bring me the magical realm and you throw Matt Groening and his humor in on this, I, and, and I'm all in on Disenchantment. I really, really hope that this is good because, I mean, if The Simpsons can run for almost 30 years at this point, just think of what Netflix could do with Disenchantment because clearly Matt Groening doesn't run out of ideas and he hires writers that don't run out of ideas. So if Disenchantment works... And it looks like there's a lot of likable characters and so many new characters that you could introduce as the princess ventures out into more of more of the world and kind of ditches her her princess garb. I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but at least that's what we're seeing in this first trailer. There's just so many things you can do, especially when you're talking about the mystical realm. I think that this is a really, really cool idea, and I can't wait to see where this is going to go. Voltron Season 7 fans were really, really talking about this one. Can't wait for that to come back on August the 10th because we know that Lotor, defe- Lotor has been defeated and Shiro has re- been recovered. And now the Paladins are finally able to set a course to Earth until they really run into a lot of trouble along the way, don't they? It, 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 it should all be that simple, right? Now, there's a long journey that's going to have to be taken, and we see that, I mean, there's epic creatures and everything, and multiple obstacles that stand in their way, and it looks like there's a chance that the, the planet's not going to be the same as how they left it, and that's what they're going to be exploring in this seventh season. I think this is actually going to be one of the more heavy seasons Voltron. I know that there's there's always plenty of, of humor and light moments in there as well. But think about it. You fought for something for this long, and then once you get there, it's not at all what you thought it was going to be. I think that's going to be one of the themes of this upcoming season of Voltron. I still need to catch up a little bit. I'm admittedly a little bit a little bit behind. So I've got some time. I'm definitely going to be doing that. And it just seems like there's going to be a lot of problems as they try to get back to Earth. So I don't expect to see them get there anytime soon in this particular season. I think they'll drag that out a little bit. Talk about a couple of different things now. Let's talk about Cosmos. Of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson is going to be back on Fox and Nat Geo with that. It seems like we're really setting up a what-if series because it's going to be called Cosmos Possible Worlds. And what we have here is it's like, a okay, one episode will be, what if we do find intelligent life? What would we do with that? How would we really react if we actually did that? And then what might we find in a galaxy that has another sun? What if we did end up on one of these dwarf planets? It's going to be exploring a lot of those different things. And I think that if you're going to bring Cosmos back, that's one of the cool things that you could do with it, right? So I'm glad that they realized that and said, oh, we've got something here. And in the spring of 2019, we'll find out exactly how many of those things we're going to explore. I mean, I liked Cosmos anyway. And if you want to sit me down with Neil deGrasse Tyson and just let him talk about the possibilities of space and multiverse theories and, and, and travel, I'm, I'm all for it. Let's just do that. But if we're going to explore what-if scenarios, then I'm really stoked 
for Cosmo's possible worlds. Maybe even more so than I was for the first season. One more I want to talk about because I was at the Nat Geo party at San Diego Comic-Con, which was a blast, by the way, thanks to the folks at Nat Geo for inviting me to that, is Mars. If you haven't seen Mars yet, you're going to want to watch that before you watch season two because it's part documentary, part live action series. This second season is really going to focus on miners who are there to make money off of the resources of Mars. And I mean, that that's the situation when you have anything new, like how can we make money off of this and how can these resources be mined and benefit us right now? Never damn the consequences, right? Let's just kind of just, just their line right from the trailer was drill, baby drill. And yeah, maybe there's some parallels there, but I'm not even sure that's what they're trying to do. It's just highlighting the fact that when we do get to Mars, this is legitimately something that could happen. And that was actually discussed in some of the presentations that were done at the party. They were talking about, okay, here's all the things that we need to do before we do try to colonize on Mars or even go to Mars. So we see the existing crew there from the first season. They're going to have to choose sides and they're going to have to decide exactly how they feel about what's going on. And they're going to push boundaries and they're going to find out where the line is. And are they going to stop them from doing what they're doing? Or are they just going to allow it to happen? And should they allow it to happen? So there's a ton of questions. I love the fact that we're exploring this in both the fictional sense and in a real-world sense as well and combining the two. I actually got a chance to talk to the cast and the showrunner and one of the consultants for the show on the red carpet at the Den of Geek launch party. So be looking out for that video at downandnerdypodcast.com. It's very, very interesting to talk to them. And plenty of time to catch up, by the way, if you haven't seen Mars Season 1, November the 12th is when you'll see Season 2 on the National Geographic Channel. Wow, that was a lot of trailers. Let's take a deep breath before we dive into some nerd news. Just a few more items left to talk about before we get to our interviews with the cast, producers, and writers of of DC, Aquaman, Lego, Rage of Atlantis. That's all coming at you next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Harewood from Superdog. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. San Diego Comic-Con isn't done quite yet because it's time for nerd news. And there were certainly plenty of stories that came out. This one actually kind of didn't have anything to do with San Diego Comic-Con at all other than it delayed an announcement that Sony had planned on making. And that is that James Gunn has been fired, as of me recording the show anyway, as the director and guru of Guardians of the Galaxy by Disney and Marvel Studios. And just in case you don't know, of course, this was first reported by The Hollywood Reporter and fired for a very insensitive tweet that was sent out 10 years ago. I'm not going to read the tweet, not going to go into all the details. I'm just going to give you my opinion on this. And I want to make something very clear before I even get started. I don't condone what he said 10 years ago. I don't think it was funny. I thought it was in poor taste. I thought it was terrible. But here's the thing. This was done 10 years ago, and Disney and company knew about this, or at least they had to at that point, right? He even apologized for this James Gunn did six years ago. Now, does that make it okay? Can you just say, I'm sorry, and it goes away? Maybe not. Maybe it was really that bad, and maybe it was to the level that he should have been fired. Let's just say that. Why make him the director of Guardians of the Galaxy at all, right? If anybody's going to be doing their due diligence, it is the family 
oriented company that is Disney. And clearly they have a zero tolerance policy. And I get that. I don't even necessarily fault them for that. What I fault them for was you knew about this. You had to know about this way back when. You had to know that this existed before you hired James Gunn. But you hired him anyway. And I'm not even saying that that was a mistake necessarily. But if this is the decision that you're going to retroactively make, something stinks here. And I'm not sure exactly what it is. And before you get all over my case on this and get upset that I'm I'm not necessarily defending James Gunn. And I'm not necessarily saying that Disney's wrong for making the decision. I'm saying that they're wrong for making the decision now. This decision should have been made a long time ago or it should have been made it should have been made to not hire him in the first place if this is how they really felt. And think about it, if Guardians of the Galaxy 1 was terrible and it sucked, James Gunn would have been gone a long time ago. But because he did a great job and he was very, very successful, he has stuck around to this point until somebody wanted to go ahead and point out something that he said on Twitter 10 years ago. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of people that started combing back their social media history and saying, am I still proud of what I said 10 years ago or however many years ago it was? And, you know, I'm sure we're all the same people. That we were 10 years ago, right? And maybe James Gunn is still that person, by the way. I don't know James Gunn. He seems very apologetic. He seems like, you know, that's not how he feels anymore. That's not how he feels like he represents himself anymore. And you can either take him at his word on that or you don't have to. That's your decision. I'm not telling you how to, how to feel about James Gunn. All I'm saying is, is that the best of people, and I will include myself in this for sure, have said some dumb things, done some dumb things, or done things or said things that we don't necessarily believe anymore. There's plenty of stuff that I'm sure that if you dragged up and it's something I said 10 years ago on social media, or if you even want to go back further than that, I can't say that I necessarily feel the same way as I did. And that goes with anything, whether it be politics or any sort of social situation. You're not necessarily going to feel the same way that you did 10 years ago. And should we all apologize for feelings that we had or stupid things that we said 10 years ago? Because I got to tell you, we'd be spending a lot of time apologizing if we've really got to turn back the clock that far. And maybe James Gunn is held to a different standard because he was put in this position by Disney. But James Gunn is just doing his job and doing it to the best of his ability. And I don't think, by the way, we are at all done seeing James Gunn in the world of Hollywood. I think there's going to be a cooling off period, sure, but I don't think that he's done at all. And maybe he's not even done with Disney. It seems like a lot of people are jumping to his defense, and there's plenty of people, too, that are saying, screw James Gunn. He should never work in this town again. But if this is the standard that we're setting, there's a lot... I mean, this could happen to anyone, basically. Someone that you really love in the world of Hollywood, or even just in general. This could happen to anybody. And are you going to have to, at some point yourself, stand up for something that you said 10 years ago, 8 years ago, that maybe you regret saying, or you don't feel that way anymore? Just think about how quickly you could be done for something that you said years ago that might have been stupid or insensitive, because my point is, is that doesn't excuse what James Gunn said, and it was horrible, but, you know, maybe not to that degree, but we've all said something stupid 
and that we, that we wish we could take back. In the social media, yeah, you can delete it, but how quickly can you delete it? And once it's on the internet, it's out there. So again, not sticking up for James Gunn at all. Not saying that what he did was right. What I'm saying is, is that they had to know about this. And why is it now a problem and wasn't a problem there before? Just something seems very, very off about this. Kind of going to lighten things up now and talk about the announced Buffy the Vampire Slayer reboot that was announced at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Yes, Joss Whedon is going to be involved in bringing Buffy back. And fans went nuts and not the way you would think when they found out about this because there's a certain stigma attached to Joss Whedon as well. Not going to go into that. If you want to Google it and Google all the history of why people are upset with Joss Whedon, that's fine. Go ahead and just go ahead and, and go down that rabbit hole if you like. And again, I'm not defending Joss Whedon. Don't even think that's what this is going to be. If you have an opinion about Joss Whedon, then, then I'm, I'm cool with that. You can feel about Joss Whedon how you, how you do it. I'm not even saying I, I necessarily disagree with you. What I'm saying is, is that you're jumping all over a reboot that maybe we don't need. And that's just for Hollywood in general. Maybe we don't need to re- reboot everything. But we're jumping the gun on something we don't really know anything about yet. And we don't know how much Joss Whedon is going to be involved in this. Of course, there's going to be a certain level of creative control there because, you know, it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And this is something that historically he's been involved in. But it looks like we are going to be focusing on a very diverse cast this time around. Fans, yes, we're very outspoken. But the new showrunner for the series, Monica Awusu-Breen, excuse me, Monica, if I butchered your name, First of all, tweeted out something way after the fact, by the way, because it seemed like that the fan reaction was getting back to her and, and saying that how big of a fan of Buffy that she was and Buffy was her Star Wars. And that's a big statement in nerd culture, isn't it? If she loves Buffy that much and is and this is a passion project for her, then I'm more on board on board with this than I was before, because even she's saying, you know, like, there's only one of these characters. You're not going to replace these characters, but maybe it's time, and she even said this is partial quote from the tweet, it's time to meet a new Slayer. The world is different now. And again, this goes back to what I was just saying. You might not feel the same world, the, the same way you did 10 years ago. The world's not the same as it was 10 years ago, and it seems like Buffy is going to reflect that fact. This new Buffy is going to reflect that, you know, maybe it's going to be a little bit darker of a tone. Maybe it's not going to be as lighthearted as it was before. Maybe it's going to capture a different feeling because if you're going to reboot something, you don't want to do it exactly the same way as it was done before, right? What if there's a different angle that you can take? What if there's a different story that you can tell? And this was my argument with the Charmed reboot as well. What if there's something different that you can do? and bring to fans that's a different perspective on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Why not at least give this a shot? Let's give it a trailer. Let's give it a little bit more of a description. Let's give it a synopsis before we jump all over this. I think we jump all over stuff way too quickly, and this is another prime example of that. I know there's a lot of love from the original fans of Buffy, and I totally understand that, but you have to remember Joss Whedon was a part of that too. So being mad because Joss Whedon is involved just because you don't like him now is not necessarily a bad thing either. And yeah, he hasn't done very well with female characters overall recently. But this is still something that he was a big part of and a lot of fans loved for a reason. 
let's just keep that in mind going forward here. Krypton has done it again. The sci-fi series makes another big casting announcement. And this time it is the main man himself, Lobo, is going to be the big bad for Krypton Season 2. And this is going to expand the show beyond Kandor. Of course, Doomsday is unleashed now. The aftermath of Season 1, which was a big aftermath, is going to be a big part of what's going on in Season 2. The question that's been brought up, and I'm not even sure why we care, is what's going on with the Michael Bay Lobo movie that's going to be happening, if they're going to be doing this. First of all, to me, that Lobo movie was always eons away. And it was not going to be happening anytime soon, despite various reports that might have been to the contrary. First of all, I don't think necessarily we need a Lobo movie right now. And again, just because you're using Lobo here on Krypton doesn't preclude you from making a Lobo movie. If anything, it's a, it's a tip of the toe in the water saying, should we do more Lobo or not? And it, this is all going to boil down to casting too, because if you don't cast Lobo well for Krypton, it's not going to matter. But I think Krypton's got a pretty darn good track record of casting well in that writer's room is top notch. I think they proved that in season one. And there's so many things to do in season two that even have nothing to do with Lobo that we probably won't even see Lobo right away in season one. We'll see little winks and nods here. And there's other characters that were sort of teased for the show as well. So you want to give me Lobo on Krypton? I'm down for that. Let's do that. We got to find out what's going on with Seg first as well. So there's, again, so many different things that we can do with Krypton. And adding Lobo to the mix makes it even more crazy and I love that because Krypton's not afraid to take chances. And that's one of the reasons I think season one worked out so well. Speaking of which, I think Supergirl kind of found their niche last year as well as the show that kind of tries to tackle the real issues. And Supergirl, and a great announcement from San Diego Comic-Con, has cast the first transgender superhero on television, which is going to be played by Nicole Maines, who's been cast as Naya Nall, who we know to become as the character Dreamer. Now, she will fight against discrimination and hatred, according to the actress herself. And Jessica Queller, who's the executive producer on the show, said, quote, our show is all about inclusion and representation. And that's why Supergirl is the perfect show to do this with, and of course, the CW network of DC shows as well. We, you know that we've got Batwoman coming to the Arrowverse. Looks like she's getting her own show as well. So all of a sudden, a ton of representation on television from DC Comics in the, t in the TV realm and bringing so many different characters, as they've always really done on this network and on, the, and on these shows. This is just a continuation a great representation, I think, on DC TV, and I talked about that at DC and DC back in January with members of the Arrowverse, as it's as it's affectionately referred to as, and and the ladies of the Arrowverse even said to me that they think the representation on these shows has always been pretty good. And that quote, by the way, was from an interview from Clever News that happened with Jessica Queller. Don't want to forget to give them credit. For that, so again, this is another step forward, and it's and it's not forced either. This is something that it feels like it fits, and this is the right show to do this on because it seems like Supergirl is the right place to introduce a transgender hero. And in the storyline that they're working with, I talked about the trailer before 
it seems like it, it, that this actually fits within this storyline. So it's not something that's going to be crammed in just to say, oh, well, we got the first transgender hero on TV. We we jump, we beat everybody else to the punch to that. So good for us. No, no, no. It's actually going to be worked in and make sense with the story. So it's not representation for the sake of being represent for the sake of having representation. This is actually going to make legitimate sense. And I love that they found a way to do that. Quickly, I wanted to talk about the DC animation announcements that were made. Of course, finally getting the Batman Hush movie, the animated adaptation. Thank you, Bruce Tim. I know I bugged you about that. Thank you so much for finally making that happen. Reign of the Superman, which is going to continue the Death of Superman story. We're going to be getting those interviews probably next week on the Down and Nerdy podcast with the cast and producers of Death of Superman that I was a part of at San Diego Comic-Con 2018. Justice League versus the Fatal Five, and then we're finally going to get another Wonder Woman animated movie called Wonder Woman Bloodline. So just take your pick there. I think that those are all DC Animation and Warner Brothers Animation does such a good job with these movies by and large. I can't wait for all of them. I mean, this is really a shut up and take my money type of situation. So you just bring it on. Keep making these movies. And I love that they're making a ton of them. Before we move on, I want to talk about some of the collectibles at the San Diego Comic-Con show floor. And one thing that stood out to me was a meeting that I had at the booth for ThinkGeek. And they told me about their new Modern Icon statues that are going to be coming. Now, Modern Icons get a focus on characters that kind of have little or no product available, which I think is really, really neat. And it's going to focus mainly on video game characters. The price point, I think, is good, too. It's going to be $40 for these statues, at least in this initial run, anyway. And But there, yeah, t- trust me, I saw the statue up close. Really high-end design, built very, very well, all the way down to the realistic paint jobs that were on there, the wear and tear that was shown. And the reason I say that is because Fallout Girl is going to be their first kind of launch into the modern icon statue line and it's going to be launching right around the same time as the game comes out actually along with a lot of their other fallout 76 products that thinkgeek.com is going to have so and and i kind of pushed them to try and say okay what other characters might we find on this very much going to be about video games they didn't want to reveal any more characters i can't blame them. i mean don't put the cat take the cat out of the bag this soon right but i i think this is a cool idea and as, as somebody who's wanted to get back into collecting, especially statues, it's expensive. It's tough to kind of jump right in with the high-end collectibles, right? And there's so many good ones. And for ThinkGeek to realize, okay, there are plenty of fans that want to get back into the high-end collectibles game, but the price point is too high. They found a way to make it work with this $40 price point and really, really giving a quality product. I got to see with my own eyes, six inches away from my face, guys. This is a legit representation of a good line of statues and i can't wait till they make a hundred of these things and we have so many great statues for characters that we didn't have a chance to buy anything of before so i think this is a great idea from think geek that's gonna do it for nerd news up next you know you i know you've been waiting for the interview so let's dive into dc lego aquaman rage of atlantis the cast and the crew join me next on the down and nerdy podcast This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Coverage from San Diego Comic-Con 2018 begins with LEGO DC Comics superheroes Aquaman Rage of Atlantis animated movie. The cast, the producers, the writers, 
join me and a bunch of other members of the press at San Diego Comic-Con to talk about the movie. Starting off with Troy Baker, who's going to be playing Batman in the movie. And he was talking about how he plays Batman. Let's find out. You're going to hear a lot of Kevin. Because that's like my, that's my safe, warm place. And that's my Batman. No, there's nothing wrong with that. And especially for this, it just, it works. I don't need to do... There's certain people that choose to take this iteration and make it gruffer and a little bit more, oh, how do I say, uh, a dick? Oh. <laughs> um, that works for some people. For me, I think this should be a little bit more of a throwback to 66. So you're going to hear a little bit of Adam, you hear a little bit of Kevin, and then every once in a while, for Goose, we do a little bit of Bale. There's also a little bit of Keaton. It's just, I get to, never Val Kilmer. We never do kill her. Um, there's no, there's no discussion of bat credit cards. Um, or Clooney, but Clooney had that bad American Express or whatever. It's like, come on, man. Um, which tipped the hand that he was a billionaire. People were like, Bruce. <laughs> I was like, Who else would have that? So I get, I get the benefit of doing that. But no, man. Any time that they're like, hey, you want to do another one? I'm like, yes. Yes, six days of the week and twice on Sunday. Up next, I get to ask Troy about talking about the contrast between how he plays Batman in the Telltale series of games and Lego Batman. You, you kind of get to get both opposite ends of the spectrum too, because you do. I think I'm pretty sure you do the Telltale series, yeah. Batman games, and you do this. So it's kind of nice to do. Okay, I can do the heavy Batman and the lighter Batman, the Lego. Yeah, I was I was a little nervous about it. I was like, well, people take me seriously, and. The, at the end of the day, the character is bigger than any one actor. So, and I learned that when I did the Joker, because I, I turned down doing the Joker twice. And Ames Kirchin, the who at the time was head of Warner Brothers Games, came for DC Properties, came in, showed me my uh, audition, and said, that's really good. I'm like, thanks, man. He goes, no, no, no. We think that's really good. And we're really smart. <laughs> So you need to get over yourself. And it's true, it's a character that's been around, Batman's been around for more than 75 years. You know, starting to click towards 100 now. It's been iterated about, I got to sit down across from Bruce Tim last night and talk about Batman, I'm gonna flip this table over. I was freaking out. Of all the time that I've been working, I've met Paul Dini, I've met Alan Burnett, I've never sat down with Bruce. And being able to sit across from him and learn what Batman meant to him is incredible. So, I'm oh look. I think I'm an okay actor, but I'm not. I'm not terrible enough. No matter how bad I am, I'm not going to ruin Batman. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm George Clooney, <laughs> I can ruin Batman. Not even Clooney or Kilmer killed. I'm joking. Those guys are just fine. He can buy another house in Lake Cuomo. Next, Troy Baker was asked about playing both Batman and the Joker, and does that have an effect? on how he plays the character. If I allow it to, then that's Troy in that scene, you know? Um, I have to do that mental etch-a-sketch, uh, and I keep that tucked away in my back pocket, and I love it. But at the second that I pull that out, then the only reason why I'm pulling it out is to, it's out of ego. It's me telling someone, Neil Druckmann, 
director of The Last of Us is the one who challenged me because I wanted to always change the script. If I didn't like something, if it didn't sit well, it didn't found, you know, sound right coming out, then I wanted to change the line. And he says, I want to challenge you that instead of wanting to change the line, maybe you need to change your understanding of the character. Ask a question first. Is there something about this line, or the intention of it, or the character that I don't understand? And it becomes an opportunity to learn something. Then, if it still doesn't work, then we can change it. So if I want to, if I'm somehow pulling that card out and going, hey, I've played the Batman and Joker, I'm only saying that because I'm trying to convince somebody what I know about that character that they don't. And I'm missing an opportunity for them to tell me something about the character that I don't. And that's what we're here to do. I want, there are kids that this will be the first introduction to any of these characters. Um, if they see this and then they see the Aquaman movie, I feel bad, those kids are gonna be like, well, wait. <laughs> Where did the hair come from? Um, but you know, it's, it's our responsibility to teach them a little bit of something about these characters, teach them a little bit of something about the lore, and then if they go, Batman has a file on everybody in the Justice League, and you go, my son or my daughter, let me give you a graphic novel that you should see, and you get to see how dark of a storyline that is, but he's got a kill button, he's got a kill switch on every member of the Justice League. That's awesome. Next to sit down with us was the great Susan Eisenberg, who's playing Mira in this Lego Aquaman movie. So will we see Mira be the driving force behind Aquaman in this movie? That was the first question that was asked. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, and I always loved that about her because I always I was exposed to her in Justice League and um, she's very much that. And what I love about the film too is that there's such a love affair going on between the two of them. Like you really feel it. And even they have their own separate stories in this movie. But um, they're a unit also, and that's, I mean, that's what I remember about the two of them, and that's what I got to play. So that was very, you know, that was exciting. Next up, I got a chance to ask Susan, were you surprised that we haven't seen a lot of Mira already? As you were learning about this character, yeah. were you kind of surprised, like, why haven't we seen more from her already leading up to this movie? Well, as somebody who voiced Wonder Woman, um, I'm never surprised that we don't see more of the leading ladies um, because we just don't. And that's, we will now, and that's fantastic. Um, what's so great about this film also is that we intro were introduced to Jessica Cruz, and she's so, um, you know, terrific in this in this movie. I mean, her her. Her character is flawed and funny and darling, and she's going to be around for a long time, Jessica Cruz, and that's going to be great for all the young people watching this movie and listening to this movie. They're going to be introduced to this new, flawed, fantastic character. So, no, I'm not surprised, but I think it'll change. Good. <laughs> yeah. As great as Susan Eisenberg is, one of the questions that was asked was, what was her biggest concern in voicing Mira? My biggest concern with this is that I didn't sound like Wonder Woman. You know, that's, I just didn't want that for the and fans. And how did you go about doing that? You know what? I um, tried to do a higher pitch, and I then I did because she's got like a complicated story in this. So then I did a much lower pitch, and I don't think I sound like her. The fans may, but I don't think I do. But I have two grunts in the movie, and they're totally Diana. <laughs> I'm just saying it now, putting it out to the universe. Fans, it was totally Diana. I was ch because it's so hard for me to do that, like, and not sound like, like yeah. Diana. I was lucky enough to ask Susan Eisenberg one more question that was 
you know, because she always wants to deliver for the fans, is there maybe a villain that you'd like to voice in the DC Universe at some point? Speaking of the fans, how did you've gotten to do something a little bit different going from Wonder Woman to Mira? Yeah. Is there at some point a villain that you'd like to tackle in the DC Universe perhaps at some point? Not in the DC Universe. Um, in, in the DC Universe, I love being a heroine. You know, it's like with Injustice, the game. Mm -hmm. You know, it, Diana's a badass, yeah, and yeah. people have asked me about that, like, how was it? I prefer, if I have my way, and no one's giving me my, you know, no one's asking, how do you want to play right, Seuss? Right. Um, but I love playing her as a heroine. I love the fact that she's good, and that she does the right thing, and that she's kind, and compassionate and empathic. So I'd rather play that character. Now, most people will say they love to play the villain because it's gritty and it's, it's you know, naughty. Um, but, and that's all true. But in the DC universe, I'll take the heroes. Up next was the wonderful Christina Melizia, who's going to be playing Jessica Cruz in the DC Lego Aquaman movie. Now, is Jessica's fear going to be a part of this movie? That was one of the questions that was asked. Very much so, absolutely. Uh, it's dealt with in a more lighthearted manner, um, obviously, because it's more Lego and it's a you know it's a fun movie. Um, but it's definitely addressed in this film. Um, you're going to see her as more of a a very un, you know not so confident member of the Justice League. Um, you know, Superman's like time for our big superhero entrance. And Jessica's like, oh God, who would want to miss that? Um, so you'll, you'll see her. Oh, she's here. She's yeah. so cute. There I just saw her. Oh, I love her. Yay. You're wearing green, too. I, I tried really hard to find a green dress. Um, but yeah, no, so you'll definitely see that uh, in here. And, and she'll have moments where she doesn't quite get it together, other moments where she succeeds beautifully, um, which I think is just such a relatable quality that's more like real life we don't all just go out and, and get amazing things done like this and um, so I think there's a lot of people that feel really connected to her because that she is someone that they can relate to um, in a more realistic way so now, of course, I had to know how comics accurate this was going to be, right? So I asked Christina, will Jessica struggle to make those constructs in this movie? We've seen in the comics that she sort of struggles with the constructs when she's using her lantern. Is that something we're going to see as well in this? Oh, yes. She's a little bit? Oh, yes. <laughs> There's one moment where she's like, don't screw this up, don't screw this up. And she, she screws it up. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's a moment where there's like no pressure and she's like, oh good, safety, no one's watching and she makes this amazing construct that's like super, you know, it's just like super strong. So, um, and isn't, I mean, that's just like life, you know, it's like I could do it now when no one's watching, right? Uh, so yes, you'll definitely see her struggle with her constructs, making the wrong one at the wrong time and uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good continuity and, and a more lighthearted approach to what the traditional comics have been. So much great talk about Jessica Cruz that someone actually asked about Jessica being a relatable character. And she starts talking about a moment from the Sam Humphreys comics run of Green Lantern. So you know I had to jump in there at some point. For those who have read the comic books, there's, um, there's a moment in the comics um, that, that Sam Humphreys wrote uh, where Jessica is speaking to her sister. And... She says, I don't know why the ring picked me. I'm like the last person that should be picked for this. I'm afraid of everything. And Jessica's sister says, no, you're the perfect person. You face fear and you battle fear every day. You were made to be a Green Lantern because they have to channel their willpower in order to to overcome great fear. That's everything, that's what Green Lanterns are about. And so I was just, that was a huge epiphany for me. And I was like, wow, what an incredibly powerful concept. 
because it's it's not we all experience fear it's about not letting it control and dictate our actions that's the power and that's the human experience so I love that they've created this character and are bringing that out I think it's going to give a lot of people those who deal with anxiety and, and those who are just normal people um, have more courage in their daily lives you really did dive in I love that yeah. oh, sorry I'm a big nerd I like no, no, the no, history I appreciate it yeah. Yeah. for that actually no it's I think it's yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'd like to do a full research of it, and, and I wanted, again, I, I knew I was the first person to, to be this character, and I wanted to have a full understanding of those who had been with her from the beginning, of what they experienced, and what that would mean in this context. So yes, this is definitely a more lighthearted approach. You'll see a much more just like, huh, oh, I don't know what's going on kind of version. Uh, but you know, I definitely I respect the, everything that's come before, and I really look forward to seeing what DC does with Jessica as time goes on, because this is just the beginning moment. She's going to evolve, and I'm sure they're going to they're going to have darker approaches to her and lighter approaches to her. Um, and her story is so powerful. I'm, I'm just I'm honored to be part of it. Up next, Brandon Vietti, who's the executive producer, and Matt Peters, who is the director on DC Comics superheroes Lego Aquaman. Rage of Atlantis, and the first question was, is there any synergy there with the upcoming Aquaman movie? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a little bit of synergy there. We're always working back and forth with uh, DC, and um, we have a great partnership with them, and, and um, you know, we're kind of aware of, like, you know, what movies are coming down the pipe from them in terms of live action, and there is a, a synergy. You know, we want to try to introduce the world to these characters, both in the live action stuff and also um, in animation, you know, so there is a synergy there that, that we're trying to get a lot of Aquaman out there right now because he's such a cool character and it's interesting the, the reach that we have now, I mean, you know, Warner Brothers animation has grown, we're doing so many more animated projects that are being seen in so many more places, plus all the live action television stuff, plus all the live action movie stuff, the reach of the DC Universe is growing and growing and growing and growing, it's not just the comic book world anymore. And so to be part of this larger opportunity to be able to push these characters out to new audiences that may not necessarily know them, um, it's just fantastic. Because we, we grew up with these characters and, and love them already. We just want the rest of the world to love them too. And DC is, is fantastic when it comes to it because we've got so many different universes that we can you know exploit. I mean, it's like the movie universe is separate from the TV universe, is separate from uh, the animation, and then Lego itself is even separate from that. And it's always really, uh, it, it's it's for us. It's a it's a great chance to sit and you know choose another aspect of Lego. Or, sorry, it's Aquaman as a character and tell a story on that kind of character that's different than what you might see in the movies. You, know? you might not know this, but Atrocitus is actually the villain of this Lego Aquaman movie. So the question was asked: How did Atrocitus and the Red Lanterns end up being chosen in the first place? You know, it's a it's sort of a group conversation with um, with us, with DC, with Lego, and we all kind of talk about the the characters that we would like to see in a movie. And it kind of starts there. And we get a lot of support from DC. We get a lot of support from from Lego. And and really, it's just sort of a, a group effort to like pick some characters, tell a great story. Because that's, that's really what we want to do. Again, we're, we're kind of trying to spread the word of the DC Universe, really, one character at a time. Um, so much like kids get together with other friends and they all bring their toys to the table <laughs> and they build an adventure together, honestly, that is very much how these movies start out. 
it's really great too because then you can actually expand. So it's like you can start with that history that you have in mind for Aquaman, but then it's also like you can throw in Atrocitus, and that introduces a whole different direction that things can go. Yeah, I never thought I'd see a crossover with Aquaman yeah. and Atrocitus. Right. I mean, that's nuts. That just doesn't make sense. And so to have the opportunity to tell that story? Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. <laughs> You want to talk about a lot of fun when D. Bradley Baker, who plays Aquaman in this movie, sat down with us in the press room at San Diego Comic-Con 2018 for DC Comics Superheroes Lego Aquaman Rage of Atlantis. You knew it was going to be a great time, so hear him talk about how he sees Aquaman. Pompous but sweet, he's actually. He's, he's, not, um, he's not a jerk. He's actually a really sweet, nice guy. He's vulnerable and a little insecure, actually. As, as, uh, as confident as he comes off uh, initially, um, it, it, he's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a regalness to the guy that uh, undercuts this kind of little boy aspect of him who uh, just gets giddy when his wife makes a bubble fish <laughs> and, uh, and often can kind of call things wrong because he has uh, kind of a... It, it, it's, it's, maybe you could say it's almost a naive take on others because he doesn't assume that they're bad or mean or trying to hurt him. It's, it's almost like that doesn't compute for him. So that if somebody disparages him or dismisses him, he doesn't seem to take it personally. And he right away uh, forgives and is okay to be friends. And that's, that's kind of a, a, an admirable uh, characteristic, I think. There's something rather sweet about the guy in, in, the, in terms of that. Aquaman's relationship with Mira, very important part of the character. So someone asked him about his take on their relationship. They have a really sweet, kind of a pure relationship. Uh, it's, it's, it's an unclouded love, I would say. Uh, she utterly forgives and I think probably finds a little bit adorable his vulnerableness. He's like a little boy. And uh, she's... Uh, she is very queen-like, but very creative, and uh, and they have a very wonderful, loving relationship in this. It's uh, it's it's very nice. So much great behind-the-scenes questions with D. Bradley Baker. I had to ask him. He was talking about improv, so I asked him about how he balances those improv skills with a good script when he gets one. So when you have that improv kind of background, but you're also working with a good script like you like you have here, how do you balance that with the well, this is a good line, but what if we did it this way, sort of thing, or does that kind of thing just kind of come out? Well. Yeah, how I think of it is this. It's like, I, I don't show up at a gig uh, prepared. I show up ready. And so uh, you've got the, the clay to work with, which is the script. And then you've got uh, the producers and the show director uh, to throw you the ad adjectives to kind of uh, get a lock on the tone and the pace. But that's like getting suggestions from an audience. You know, give me a career, uh, give me an emotion, and then you do a scene. And that, it's more how it plays out in voice acting is that. Because if you just get your script and you get a description of your character and even a drawing, that may not be at all. What you come up with may not at all be what they actually want. You can only find that out when you're in the studio with them. And so it doesn't really pay to, to memorize or really dig down deep into one particular thing for the most part. Some, sometimes it may, if they need like a particular accent that they really want, then you may want to research that. But generally speaking, I, I look at it as an improv. Uh, it's an improv uh, career where it rewards the open and the ready 
to to take things a different direction because I mean often you'll give a, you'll give a line a read and they'll say we want it this way uh, let's try it up here let's try it that way and you just got to be great let's do it let's jump in and then you throw in your own ideas and they'll go yeah love that uh, no that doesn't work uh, yeah let's try this and you, you, you do it nice and quick like that so for me the best training that I had other than just being on a stage and getting confident was improv was good good improv training. There's, there's, there's good improv training and bad improv training. But I, I was very lucky, especially in Orlando, Florida, to work with SAC Theater, uh, S-A-K Theater. And they had a really great varsity team there with uh, uh, Joe McCrary and uh, uh, Jonathan Mangum and uh, 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 a whole group of really good improvers. And I learned a lot very quickly from them. Love getting a chance to talk to the writers of these movies, especially when I get a chance to talk to Jim Krieg. Not going to pass that up. Joined by Jeremy Adams as well. So kind of the talk was, where's the line between making fun of Aquaman too much or just enough? Let's hear about that. When you're going through and you're writing the script, the Lego movies are usually the funny movies in this universe. Anyway. I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you for saying so. If they're not, we're fired. Yeah. <laughs> How do you go about not making fun of the Aquaman character too much? Because that's something that's been done a lot over the years. Yeah, and you know what? I think we kind of played with that trope. I mean, it, I mean that is like one of the first jokes you make as a kid. It's like, what are they going to do if he's in the desert? Yeah. You know? And, and basically, we did every one of those jokes, but but all in service of a story that it's sort of like if. if if Aquaman was re real and uh, mm -hmm. a Lego character and <laughs> heard all Lego of these character. hurtful things, he would at a Weirder certain point he'd be <laughs> he would think, "Oh, I stink! I'm a terrible hero." And so this is all about like him kind of proving to the other members of the Justice League that he's valuable, and uh, and the other members of the Justice League are his friends coming yeah. around him saying, "You rock!" Yeah. You know what? It, it doesn't matter if you're near the ocean or far from the ocean, or you right. know, or even have a a glass of Evian near you. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're great, you know? The Wonder Twins, you know. They stink. Those guys, I, that's our next one. So, so you decided not to call this Aquaman in the quest for self-esteem? Yeah, well, no. <laughs> that was, you know, if you look at it right, you cross your eyes when you look at it. <laughs> Another thing that was discussed here was about putting the spotlight on the Lego toys themselves in the movies and how Mira works into that. One thing we want to do in all these is, is kind of um, spotlight the usefulness of uh, the Lego toys. You want to be, they're all about assembling things and building things out of nothing. And the Green Lanterns basically can do that. They can make energy things and th then you can assemble those bricks. And, and Mira also has this magic that she can make things out of water, which in our world looks just like see-through Lego bricks. <laughs> <laughs> There's just something about these DC Lego movies, right? That, you know, it's for the younger generation, but there was a lot of talk from everyone involved about, hey, these are this is for adults too. And this could be a kid's first introduction into these characters and you want them to be able to learn more and to move on to these characters as young adults and as adults and love them for their entire lives. So you want to do it right. And you're sure you can have a lot of fun in the DC Lego universe, but also this is something that's taken very, very seriously. That was something very clear by everyone involved. As a matter of fact, this, I mean, I'm looking forward to watching this with my son because DC, Lego DC superheroes, Aquaman Rage of Atlantis comes out on Blu-ray and DVD on July the 31st and so excited to find out just how funny this is going to be because I have faith for, on, with everybody involved. That's going to do it for this week's jam-packed edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to everyone who joined me 
from the DC Lego Aquaman press room at San Diego Comic-Con. Also, all my fellow members of the press. So many of you, I don't want to leave any names out, but you know who you are. Thank you so much for being so wonderful, so great, asking so many great questions, sharing a lot of great moments. Met a lot of friends and a lot of new colleagues at San Diego Comic-Con this year. I appreciate you all and the hard work that you do and hard work for everybody in the industry everyone that put San Diego Comic-Con together. Bravo for closing Harbor Drive, by the way. Brilliant move on the part of San Diego Comic-Con. And it's just put on so well. How you can get 100,000 people into a convention center with the snap of Thanos' finger and having nobody to turn to dust is amazing to me. They continue to do, to do a great job and evolve the show, and I applaud them for that. If you want to stick around, if maybe this is your first time listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast, you can always find out past shows at downandnerdypodcast.com. Please follow along on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. You can find us there as well. Also find out how to subscribe to us on multiple platforms on our website too. One thing I love to say, and I'm going to say it again, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. I'll see you at the con next year.